So, sports car, stock car, F1, IndyCar driver, David Hobbs, and also a little bit of commentary. If you could describe this lunch we just had in one word, what would it be? Delicious. I like it. Not scrumptious. Scrumptiously delicious. <laughs> Send it. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Welcome to Dinner with Racers. I'm Ryan Eversley alongside my friend and partner-ish, Sean Heckman. I'm eating coffee cake. You are eating coffee cake. All right. We are currently on the way to LAX to drop me off so I can fly the hell away from you and head back to Atlanta after a 40-day trip, which was 12,000 miles across 29 states to bring you 28 dinners, breakfasts, lunches, with racers for free and we won't get royalties <laughs> we see no more money so obviously none of this would be possible without our partners at honda for giving us this great honda odyssey van as well as continental tires continental tire do one more do one more okay continental tire <laughs> nailed it nailed yeah, it is that, that good that was the best one cross contact lx20 <laughs> We previously had just finished up our recordings in North Carolina, so then it was straight to Florida uh, to interview a handful of people, and, and we wanted to start with a legend of the motorsport scene, none other than Mr. David Hobbs. Now, most people listening to this podcast probably know who David Hobbs is, uh, but just to sort of go over a few uh, uh, stats, David has been a driver-turned-commentator who's literally been in the sport for over 50 years. But just to go over a few uh, career stats on David, drove in the 1960s in Formula One with some of the legends of the sport. You know, Jimmy Clark, Graham Hill, Jackie Stewart. He, he talks about that, even gives a small little impression. Uh, sports car driver, won his class at Le Mans, had all kinds of accolades. And then slowly transitioned into television commentary, um, starting actually with NASCAR, right. uh, but has literally been a television commentator since, as it turned out, the 70s. Um, and he's uh, most people would know him today as sort of one of the main voices of Formula One coverage in the U.S. Uh, but the guy has seen and done it all, been around the sport forever, knows everything there is to know about the sport, uh, and in fairness, for, for owing us nothing, could not have been more accommodating to what we were doing. So I think David Hobbs is like 72 years old, if that's correct. And the first thing he did when the episode ended is he tried to carry our luggage to the car with us. Yep. He actually said, like, hey, let me, let me give you a hand. And we're like, no, 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 sir. <laughs> like, you've done more than your share. So that just kind of speaks to the level of his character. One of the things I really enjoyed about this episode was he talked very bluntly about how drivers used to die on a regular basis. And what I took away was uh, an excellent chicken sandwich, which was uh, provided by the Cobalt. I believe I had the crab cake salad, and it was so good. I tried to order one for dinner at our next one, and it wasn't as good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Cobalt was a restaurant within the Vero Beach uh, Hotel and Resort, I think, uh, or Hotel and Spa. And uh, we actually stayed there. We went big one night on our big Continental Tire budget, and, uh, and it was an excellent place to stay. We didn't have to go far to, to eat. Uh, the pool there, uh, if you want to check... <laughs> 
if you want to check uh, social media feed. Ryan's social media feed on the pool or ask, here at Beach Hotel, or ask at Racer Efren. At Racer Efren, we'll be Efren happy to show you the pool yeah. from David Hobbs' episode of Dinner <laughs> with Racers. So with that, once again, thank you to our partners at Continental Tire. And enjoy David Hobbs. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. Hello, sir. Good to see you again. Oh, yeah. Doing okay? Yeah. You're all done now, right? Yes, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> How complicated. Ah. <laughs> you have no idea. Welcome to the big time. Yeah. Do you mind that Bill joins us? Not at all, no. Okay, good. <laughs> So what's our format here? Uh, there, the, <laughs> what do you want? It that's to be? a good question. It's whatever you want. There, there is, there no, is format. no format. This yeah. is just us going to lunch. Yeah. People, people need to know what it's like to hang out with David Hobbs. Pretty boring. Okay. That's all right. Generally. Good. Great. Uh, so now we just don't talk and we eat. <laughs> Unless I have a couple of drinks, then it all livens up. Then. So right. uh, we need three. No, we don't need any drinks. I had too much last night. As <laughs> So, uh, yeah, well, uh, I suppose I've always enjoyed life. Sure. Immensely. Sure. Um, had a very happy childhood. I mean, we brought up in the war. Right. In England. So, and uh, you were born right before it began, correct? Right before it began. Yeah. Uh, three months. Yeah. And uh, my dad was an inventor. Um, he, in, he invented an automatic transmission, and he was Australian. Okay. He, he and my mum were Australian. And they came to England. He was brought to England by some uh, investors from Australia because Australia had no car industry then. They only had imported mostly British cars. Back in those days, like 99% of cars imported or exported were exported from England and imported somewhere else. America never had a very strong import-export. They imported quite a few British sports cars, but they didn't export much. They just built factories. Sure. <coughs> and then kind of did like Ford Dagenham and Ford South Africa and right. Ford right. Australia. And right. GM did the same. Right. And he came to develop his transmission because England was the part of the, of the motor industry. And, uh, yeah, the war came along. Um, unfortunately, his gearbox never made it big time. Um, it got real close right. in the early 60s, 61, 62. It looked like Ford were going to use it. But then they decided not to. Um, and that's what got me in racing, really, because I raced cars that had his gearbox on them. Oh, really? Wow. So you were racing yeah. automatics? Yeah. That's crazy. And it had override. It was the first four-speed automatic. Okay. You know, back then, the Americans only had people like uh, Borg Warner and Dynaflow had... They used big fluid flywheels. Okay. And Dad's gearbox had a friction clutch, hydraulically operated, but it didn't, so it didn't use much power. Okay. And so I raced it. Mum's Morris Oxford was my first racer. Right. And uh, <laughs> I drove it. Obviously, I drove it to and from the races. Uh, no transporting like that. And I had road tyres on it, and it wasn't very successful. Um, <laughs> blew up in my first race. Nice. I should have realised then that this was not the game of the me. way to go. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, it's cool that they would allow that in, like, a junior category at the time. But I... Uh, well, a lot of the cars in my race were probably driven to and from the race. Really? Sure. Um, unfortunately, when I got there, the screwed the stewards at the meeting said, "Wow, 
you got an automatic gearbox. I had entered myself in a sedan class. So when I got there, they said, oh dear, this car's not homologated with an automatic transmission. You'll have to go in a sports car class. So mm. I mean, I'm in this old Morris Oxford up against TR2s and 3s and Jaguar <laughs> SK120s and Austin Healy's and sure. Lotus Elite. Right. And obviously, I was dragging around the back and it blew up anyway. Uh, <laughs> Maybe thankfully. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I raced out at 59 and 60. I took over my dad's Jag. He had an XK140, also with a gearbox on it. And that was a lot more successful because I, I was an apprentice at Jag. Okay. So quite a few parts <laughs> found managed, found managed to find already. their way onto my car. <laughs> <laughs> like just brakes. Um, Weird that you, you started your racing business. career as a criminal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I keep on meaning to pay them back one day, but I never got around to it. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that got me. Then uh, the following year, we looked like we were doing something with Ford. And he had a very he had a small gearbox for small cars. And it was going to be available on the Ford Anglia, right. and the Ford Cortina and Corsair, which are like one and a half litre cars. Okay. And so we put it in a low sleep. And that was a full-blooded effort you know we had a trailer for that um i won uh, 14 out of 18 starts oh wow <laughs> and i uh including we went to the nurburgring for our first international <coughs> for the thousand k's okay around the old nord slifer yeah yeah and we won the class wow. oh wow and uh wow. it was a pretty pretty good outing really right so we actually walked away it was probably about 300 quid, which Ooh. in those days but yeah. <laughs> was, a, was a lot. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And if we'd won the GT class, we'd have probably right. got 50. Yeah. Nice. That worked out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, and so when you get a big winning like that, was it was it right back into the program or was it straight to the strip clubs? Straight to the strip clubs. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> it's going to go well. You know, in those days, you used to have those big laurel wreaths. Yeah. Of course, we just had our jeans. I mean, just like right, this. Right, right, right. <laughs> jeans and There was no Nomex, there was sure. No Nomex, yeah, yeah, no yeah. nothing. Right. Um, and we also had pullovers on because it was snowed. In oh, Paris, oh, sure, it sure. Snowed okay. Yeah. Up there in the Eiffel <laughs> Mountain. Yeah. Because the race is in April. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that track, you know, I mean. Yeah, it's so long, right. Right sunshine, you know, quite yeah. warm. Yeah. yeah. And you go down the hill around the back of the mountain, and the other side of the mountain, it'd be snowing. Right, right. So, I mean, it didn't snow much, but it was pretty nippy. Enough. Yeah. But yeah. So we're standing up there on the on the winner's circle, hearing the national anthem in Germany, which, you know, I mean, it's just 61. Yeah, but say oh, you're 15 yeah. so years like past, right. 15 after yeah. the war. Yeah. So that gave us a certain yeah, pride. Right. You know, and, um, but, so, I mean, but that was kind of the era you started in where you could just kind of bring whatever and then yeah. they'll find a place for it. Yeah, and of course, you know, Jim Hall always gets the uh, accolade as being the first guy to race with an automatic. Right. Yeah. And I beat him by about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and a much better automatic. Oh, yep. Because nice. his, he was using just a, a regular three-speed. Right. Or even two-speed with a big fluid flywheel. Right. No, which was a big V8 you could get away with. Do you ever cross paths with him and kind of throw it in his face? No. I've okay. crossed paths him many times, but I never brought it up. He's, uh, he's said to be cantankerous. I'm curious if he's... You know, he's a big fan of the show. So yeah. I should have I should have uh, brought it up to because... I met him a lot when Brian Redman was driving his Formula 5000 car, when yeah. Jim Hall and um, Carl Haas got together sure. yeah. uh, in you know, 70, what, <coughs> three, right. four, and five, right. and Brian was driving that car. I suppose I should have mentioned it then, because he had retired by then. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, what, was your, what was your father's name? 
Howard. Howard. So was was that life at home growing up? Is it like he's was he that sort of vintage caricature we see in the movies? If he's always tinkering in the garage, and mom is like Howard. That, yeah. Exactly. Like okay. That. Yeah. Like just like he, an explosion in the. There's just always explosions and yeah. beakers for no reason. <laughs> he he did spend a lot. We had a Rover 14, which was his test bed. Okay. Um, and that was a very upright boxy car. Okay. Uh, it was a straight six. So he was just Probably tinkering it, putting liter. it back in. Sure. Okay. Rover 14. They had a Rover 12 and a Rover 14, and he had a box on that. And and he used his work in the garage, because he had no pit, or no. He didn't have a stand, really. Just, sure. Yeah. He, sure. So he's always crawling around on the floor under this car. Right. But he did get, you know, petrol was really, really, very heavily rationed in uh, the UK. Sure. Yeah. Sure. In the war. I sure. Mean, really, of, course, of course. There was just no traffic at all. Right. I mean, none. Right. Yeah. A few buses, a lot of trains. Right. Um, and then you're riding everywhere. And uh, Dad had a, a extra allowance to help develop his transmission because it had possibly the uses uh, you know for the war department yeah, yeah sure because he had all sorts of sizes in his brain you know um so he got a bit of an extra allowance and i used to go out with him on his test driving and we we lived about we lived in leamington spa which is about 10 miles from coventry because coventry was a big target yeah oh uh, yeah sure and the night of the blitz which would be was it 1940 or 41 I mean, Coventry got bombed one night, and um, I mean, a lot of five or six thousand people were killed Jesus. because that was the heart of our car industry. Yeah. And right. Roots Group, and Jaguar, and Standard Triumph, Austin Morris, they all had factories there, yeah. which of course were turned over to making airplanes. Right. Yeah, of course, right. of course. So it became <coughs> a big target. Um, Lamington. I mean, we had about two bombs drop in Lamington, which I think were just accidental. accidental. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but the sirens used to go off all the time, and uh, and of course we'd all go downstairs and get under the dining room tables. Right. Our and you still children. remember this? Well, that would like. fix it. Uh, right. That would help. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and um, but we used to go out near Coventry, and as you're going past all these little country lanes and country roads, right. which in England are very little roads, still are. Right. Right. And all the signposts had been taken down, huh. so the Germans couldn't find their way around if they landed. Uh, ah, sure, sure, okay. That's so sure. And so uh, crazy. in the corner of all these fields, there were these batteries of ACAC guns, you know, to, yep. sure. yeah. to get the board the planes off right. Coventry. Right. And barrage balloons. Right. Um, I just can't believe they used to fly that low, but I mean, they had these barrage balloons up on great long cables, you know. Right. To I, I apologize, what is a barrage balloon? A barrage balloon, it's right. just a great, like a blimp. Right. Yeah. Tethered to the ground. Okay. Just to keep uh, them from being able to fly through, right? Well, so, yeah, I mean, they, they somehow thought it would ward them off. Yeah. But they must have flown much higher than they would. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. There were these gun sites, and of course, lots and lots and lots of soldiers. Right. Um, now, at, your, at, at the age you're at, do you, does the impact I'm of like, everything? Huh? Does it, at, at that age, does the impact of everything kind of hit you? Like, because being kind of the selfish a-hole that I was at that age, I would think like, oh, school's off tomorrow because it blew up, you know, and be excited about right. it. Well, obviously, by the time I was old enough to really be compass mentis, you know, when you're right. about, what, four, three yeah, or four, sure. it was practically all over. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, yeah. But I do remember the air raid signs, and I do remember the noise of airplanes, and of yeah. course... Um, they would go over in big squadrons. Right. Hopefully, mostly ours, sometimes theirs. Right. But, um, yeah, so, but I do remember those guns, and I remember going to Warwick, what's now Warwick Racecourse, and lined up against a fence with this 
whole range of Spitfires. Huh. Oh, wow. So, and, uh, boy, they look so big to me now. Yeah. They yeah. look big to me then. Right, right. But now when you see a Spitfire, I mean, it's minute, you know, you can put it in there. <laughs> I mean, compared to modern yeah. Yeah, fighter sure. jets, which are sure. huge. Sure. Um, they've got to carry so much weaponry. But, right, um, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, I had a nice childhood, really, and then got this motorbike when I was 16, and I got a Lambretta scooter. I used to drive it like a madman. So then I thought I'd better get something faster. Well, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got the speed twin, which was, you know, in those days, a pretty, those Triumphs were pretty powerful bikes. I used to drive around and I'd already met Margaret, my wife, who was still married. She's just across town. And uh, we used to rush around at night. And again, <laughs> even then, and even into the 60s, you know, late 50s, early 60s, the traffic was, I mean, minuscule compared yeah, to today. Sure, no, sure. I mean, just... So you could go 100 mile an hour for yeah, with no ages right. without, and of course there were no speed limits other than in town. Right, right, right. Like and the idea of speed. highway patrol and all that no. wasn't really a thing. Yeah. No, nobody cared about speed, and that's how I got into racing. Racing mums, Morris Oxford. Nice. Okay. Then I did well in the elite, and then uh, people realised I wasn't just doing it to advertise the box. I really was interested in being a race driver. That's it. Was this was this always a career move for you? Well, yeah, it was really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had no. When I was a kid, I didn't um, like give a stop. I did start driving. Everybody now starts driving them. They're about five. Right, yeah. right. By the time they're twenty, they've had more race experience than I had. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't race till I was nineteen. Right. I mean, you couldn't get a driving license until you were seventeen, so you couldn't do anything until you were seventeen. Yeah. Right. And, and then and carting uh, wasn't a thing then. Huh? And carting wasn't a thing. Carting wasn't a thing at all. Right. And um, so. Yeah, um, I I had always admired Sterling Moss. He was my hero. Still sure. is. Sure. Um, I mean, 85 and he... Still getting it done. Still getting it done. He's yeah. funny. Uh, he's got a lovely wife, Susie. And uh, yeah, so I like to see Sterling when I can. I mean, he lives out in Phoenix, I think, oh. some of the time. Does he really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Some of the is time. he available Saturday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he only won like 16 or 17 Grand Prix. But, right. Um which in those days was a lot. Right. Because if you could survive 17 Grand Prix, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. then you were a good start. Right. Well, the championship was a shorter season. Much shorter. The 60s, right. And then, of course, Bernard Charles got in on the act and really, you know, brought Formula One you yeah. know, to where yeah, it is to where today. It in the yeah. 70s, sure. Of course. A true of course. international, massive well, that's business. A, that, so that, that's actually an interesting question is uh, F1 pre-Bernie. Um, didn't seem like it was quite the same organized event that it was, and we've never really, no one ever really gets into that when we, you know, you hear with F1 where it is today, you hear a lot of anti-Bernie sentiment and whatnot, especially from people who maybe don't know the history. But F1 in the '60s, late '50s was you had championship events, non-championship events. It seemed like a very different era for just the way it was organized. It was completely different. Right. Um, <coughs> like the British Grand Prix was always organized by the RAC, the Royal Automobile yeah. Club. Yeah. And then, then the French, you know, the Automobile Club to the West, who does Le Mans, or the ACO. And the German, was what was the Germans? Uh, the Deutsche, whatever they are. They would organize it. Um, and they had they had big crowds. You know, they had pretty big crowds. Um, and then Bernie, you know. <coughs> was it part of a champion? I mean, but it was part of a championship, so you would still get points was from, the world from race to race. Sure, sure. The first F1 race for the world, for the current world championship, was at Silverstone in 1950. Right, uh, and that was round one, and we're now at round 
900 and something you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> here in 2016. Sure. And yeah. um, Formula One was was pretty popular around the world. I mean, sure. that race at Britain, yeah. at Silverstone, yeah. yeah. I mean, it had like 150,000 people in. Oh, wow. That's like an IMSA race. <laughs> the traffic took... Of course, in those days, there were no motorways, just little country lanes, really. Yeah, right. That's so the, the right. traffic management. I mean, it took forever to get yeah. in and out. Yeah, of course. Um, and I went with my dad and mum. Yeah. And the king and queen were there. And Sterling was racing an XK120 in a support race. Okay. And of course, in those days, people like Sterling and Jimmy Clark, and me, for that matter, I mean, you'd race, you'd race a GT car. Yeah. Probably race the saloon car event. Yeah. And in the Formula One event. Yeah. Yeah. Time, it's not allowed to do that. Wise. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Sterling would jump in and out of Jimmy Clark. Always drove a Lotus Cortina and won. Yeah. Right. Then he'd drive a Lotus 23 in a sports car race. Right. And he'd either win or break, <laughs> uh, as Lotus did a lot. Sure. Right. he'd drive the Formula 1 car. But Bernie, you know, was a, a motorcycle dealer and a, and a bit of a wheeler dealer on the wrong side of the tracks, most definitely. Yeah. But obviously had a very, very, very keen sense of you know what the possibilities were sure and uh, <coughs> he owned the Brabham team for a bit mm -hmm. and then he basically sort of took over right and um, and gradually built it I mean the FIA still in theory own it and control right. it but right. really it's controlled by, right. uh, by what he's doing and of course he just pushed the promoters like hell yeah. um, and made millionaires out of a lot of people you know Ron Dennis uh, Williams, Frank Williams. Right. I mean, even someone like um, um, Jackie Oliver. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, he came over here, won the Can-Am, did right. well, well, kind of took it, it's shadow away from Don Nichols. Right. <laughs> it, it's interesting you say the attendance figures were as high as it was, and yet Bernie's the guy who kind of brought it to a much more commercially successful entity. What was the big change in the way he came in? Well, he demanded a lot, lot more money for the teams. That oh, was, that okay. Was, that's sure. what changed it. Okay. So the big profiteer was the track? Yeah, and the, and the tracks obviously made a lot of money. Okay. Um, and Bernie realized that. Yeah. And uh, none of the entrants, whether you were Ferrari or Maserati or Lotus, you know, nobody made much money. Okay. And when he came along, he changed the, the dynamic completely so okay. that the team started to really... Now I think he's gone... I think he's gone too far. Sure. And... It's squeezing tracks into extinction. Yeah. Well, we're yeah. seeing this across the board, of course. In five minutes, you know, like yeah. Turkey came and went. Yep. Malaysia are suddenly realizing that they're out. Know, yeah. Especially now Singapore's come along, and now they're a week right. later, and they're about 150 miles apart. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems um, like a, an event can't happen without government money anymore. So. No. Yeah. It can't, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Silverstone is sort of hanging on by its fingernails. Um, I mean, they signed... What, five years ago, they signed a hell of a deal. You know, it was like a 17-year deal. Right, <laughs> right. And it started off pretty cheap. Right. Like, they paid about 11 million, I think. Right. But they have a 5% escalator. Uh, so yeah. by the time they get to about year 15, I mean, they're going to be buried. It's, yeah. It's like the subprime mortgage loan of racetracks. <laughs> and so, so uh, yeah, and because they don't get any help from anybody. Yeah. And they have a huge crowd. Yeah. Right. Now they're paying Bernie like 18 or 20 million a, a race. Right. And to generate 20 million from spectators. Right. I mean, it's the same like last week in um, in Austin. Yeah. I mean, he had a great race. Um, and now Austin do get state help. Yeah. Right. 
quite a bit. But um, that's a regime change away from, from changing. Uh, yeah. But that's like a regime change away from going away. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it did It did go down. Right, it went from right. 25 to 19 million, which right. 19 million still seems a lot to me. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. And it's a sporting fund. Right. And so other sports look at it and say, hang on a minute. Yeah, you know, right. We can't get 150 grand for a bike ride or whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and you guys get 19 million. Right. But he did, he did do an incredible job, and he made a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah. Right. Which is why nobody will ever stand up to him because... You know, he's just a Ron Dennis or Frank Williams or right. anybody, you know. Hey. And I don't know this this change of ownership. I'm not... It worries me that they're paying $8 billion for it. Um, unfortunately, the whole thing to me... Uh, I'm not blaming Bernie here, but... He and Max Mosley worked out a deal when Max was president of the right. FIA. right. And they sold <clears throat> Bernie the rights, the commercial rights, right. for $300 million right. for 100 years. He then sold 75% to CVC partners yeah. for $2.6 billion. Right, <laughs> right. Good for him. And, you know, obviously, somewhere down the line, Max Mosley figured in this right. some way. Yeah. Must have yeah. Been. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that should have been the European Union are, are looking at this current deal. Yeah. Yeah. They should have looked at that deal and said, hang on, hang on, yeah, hang yeah, on. Yeah, hang exactly, on. Exactly. You are the governing body. You are now the rights holder. Right. And you sold off to a completely unknown entity. Yeah. 75% of this, of this, own, of this um, <coughs> commercial rights. Yeah. Um, and made yourself a cool 2.3 billion <laughs> on yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, this doesn't seem right to us. No. So now... <coughs> In the meantime, CBC have made, tripled their money. Right. Um, got all their money back, plus made about four more billion. Yeah. And have now sold it for eight. Right. Or 8.6 or whatever it is. Right. Um, so I don't see how Liberty Media are going to be able to parlay these rights into... Into something above eight billion dollars. Into getting yeah. eight billion back. Yeah. Unless they pay the teams and everybody else a lot less than they're doing now yeah exactly which of course is not good for formula one <laughs> right, right 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 well especially in a car culture that's dramatically different yeah. today than um, it was especially yeah. in a car culture that's dramatically Sports changed from 10 either. years ago and yeah. 20 years ago so yeah. i just think they've made it the formula too expensive the hybrid idea is just, you know and the manufacturers went along with it i mean renault and mercedes you know were very very um enthusiastic followers of the new formula because they said, well, we're not going to be involved unless it has some sort of relevance to road, to road car. And I don't like the new rules much for next year. You know, they say, well, we've got to make the cars faster. Well, they could make these a hell of a lot faster if they just opened up the fuel spigot. If they, if they enforced the regulated fuel flow. If it went from 100, right. 100, uh, 100 kilos an hour yeah. to whatever they 120. Want. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right make a hell of a difference to the performance. Of course, of course. Which I believe they are going to do next year. They're going to open the fuel spigot. You can use yeah, more okay. fuel. Okay. But you're going to have bigger tires, wider tires, wider car, yeah. um, more aero. <laughs> and so they're all saying in the paddock the other day, you know, stopping distances are going to dramatically decrease. decrease. Right. And I was saying, what? Yeah. Have you been to a Formula One 
track and stood at the side of the road <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when they're doing 200 mile an hour yeah. or 210 mile an hour yeah, right. into the first chicane in, in Monza yeah. and they'd go and you think fuck there's no way there's no way this is going to work and they right. boom and round Stop. the corner right, and, right. and they're going to shorten that down so obviously Unreal. passing under braking will become even rarer yeah, than harder, it is now sure. yeah right you got more aero, so following close behind is going to be more difficult yep. than it is now. Which, yep. according to Lewis Hamilton, says, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're thinking about. You see, because yeah. if you stop behind someone now, you can't get by him. Yeah. Right, right. If you, they just make it worse. Right. Um, I can see making a bit more grip in the tyres, but sure. I think they should take downforce away. Yeah, that's time. a very common theme in big most time. people we speak with. Yeah. So. I mean, you see those wings. I mean, they yeah. are. Joke, those right. front wings. Right. I mean, just layer and layer and layer of yeah. cascades and flow diverters right. and this, right. that, and the other. Shit. I mean, good lord. Well, so kind of going back to your career, you, 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 you drove in the era where we kind of went from no downforce to putting on wings yeah. and putting on undercarriages. What, you know, how did how did the sport react to it at that time when we started? Because you know, we're in an era where everybody's saying we don't need as much downforce as we have, and you're in the era where downforce all of a sudden was a thing. Well. It did. It seemed to make them feel more secure because sure. in the old days, you look at those pictures, Jimmy Clark, you know, that, and the, the nose of the car's up. <laughs> yeah. right. Obviously got huge lift yeah. at the front and right. understeer. Um, and then Colin was one of the first to tweak it, as was, um, you know, uh, Jim Hall. Right. Um, when I, I mean, the first car I drove with a wing was a Formula 5000, which had a high wing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the struts were mounted on the uprights. Right. Yeah. So you got... And first time I really that was 69 the first time I was really aware of aero help was in 1965 I was driving a load of T70 the first of the load of T70s and I went testing with Eric Broadley at, at Mallory Park which is about a mile and a bit um, very tight hairpin one end down through a long fast left hander then you came to a flat flat corner no bank and it was through 180 degrees. It took like 10 or 12 seconds to go around. It was quite a long corner. Yeah. Down the back straight, semesters. Now you're back at the hairpin. And then it came and he brought these little canards, you know, about half the size of, the, of your laptop. The computer, okay. Top, you sure. know. And he says, right, I'd done like a, a 51, say, okay. seconds. Yeah, sure. So, right. We're going to put these on the front, right? And they will, I think they'll make help your understanding. Sure. I said, well, it's a flimsy, you know. They won't. They just bend, <laughs> right, you know? yeah, right? Right, right, right. When you put force, on, oh, I said it's more than that. He said they redirect the flow. And Malcolm Malone was his chief mechanic. He had a great big gap in his teeth, <clears throat> and he smoked. <laughs> <laughs> so he used to stick his cigarette in this gap, <laughs> yes, so he could work. Oh, well, yeah. While he's smoking. He two hands. Yep. And then he, he he's kneeling on the ground with this canard, you know, looking at Eric Broadley with this canard, and he's, you know, going like that. And, and Eric goes, right, like, right, right. more, more, less, less. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets his pants out from behind him, and, you know. Then he puts some pop rivets in and pops it and on. And there he goes. Goes around the other side, does the same thing. <laughs> like how they do it today. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's McLaren F1. Yeah. This is uh, obviously wind tunnel work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... I go out, and I mean, just f 
straight away. <laughs> I go from like a 51 to about a 48, 8 or Oh, something. Jesus. Jesus, I yeah. said, boy, oh, boy. It's a bit twitchy at the back now. Yeah, so then they just give it a little bit of spoiler, you know, just a vertical spoiler went up and down on the slot, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, put it up about, I don't know, half an inch. Yeah. Just this much. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Just, oh, whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> Again, you know, Malcolm looking at Eric Brawley. Yeah, looks good. And, you know, got down to about a 47. I mean, <laughs> just with those little tiny canard wings. Yeah. It took a massive percentage of time. So that was my first. Right. Um, real, my first really introduction to Aero help. And, of course, the next time Aero really, really reared its head was at Indy when I was there in 71. Okay. I drove for Roger Penske. Heard I him? drove his old Lola okay. with the big Ford V8. You remember the Ford V8? Yeah, of course. Um, Al Unser was driving a similar Lola. McLaren had two, one for <coughs> Denny Holm and one for Peter Revson, and Mark had the third. And, the, I mean, the speed, the year before pole had been like 170. And the very first day, all three of those guys are doing you know, 180, 182. Right, right. And Al Unser came round to pits and said, you guys are just killing Now, that was the first time I He said, you are just killing You're making us all look stupid, and this is ridiculous. Because in the end, Mark Donahue was quickest every day. Right. Except for qualifying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Revson took the pole from him, which made, I mean. Nuts, sure. Mark went absolutely <laughs> ballistic. Um, <laughs> We were in the pit in the old gasoline alley. Yeah. And I'm in his garage and all the press were in there and they're all congratulated because he'd done his time. Yeah. And his son shucks, you know, well, it's, it, it was great. Yeah, the car went well. Thank Roger and thank Goodyear and Sunoco. And you know, it was it's a wonderful car. Blah, and while he's talking, old Tom Carnegie, who used to be the track yeah, announcer. Yeah, he was the guy, sure. He said, and it came, you could hear it. And it's a new track record. <laughs> and Mark Donahue's face <laughs> fell off. I mean, <laughs> he just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And Peter Revson got that the pole. That he got him. Uh, then, in the race, I don't know where I qualified, 11th, something like that. Um, but I was going to be the rookie of the year. And then, coming off turn four, my gearbox broke. Uh, and made the most awful clattering, banging noise, and obviously the car just sort of slowed up. And Rick Muth, who was behind me, swerved to miss me and ran into the wall, and then bounced off the wall and hit me, so we both ended up as a pile of wreckage on the straight. And then, f*** me, a few laps later, Mark Donahue's gearbox broke, <laughs> and oh, he wow. parked it down at turn between three and four, and, uh, and they just used to leave them there then. Yeah. Yeah. Like today, yeah, they no yellow pull away. And uh, Mike, Mike Mosey went around, bounced off the wall, and just honed right in, oh. slammed into the other car, and caught. And they both burnt to the ground. <laughs> so Mark Donny, uh, Roger had gone from his potentially his first win with oh, because Donahue led the race easy. Right, sure. Um, sure. And then in the end, um, Al Unser won it again for the right. second time in a row because he won it the year before. Yeah. Roger said to uh, Teddy Mayer, "Ah, well, we'll have two of those then, please." And he said, <laughs> "That was when Aero." Made a huge kind of started really showing up because yeah, it was such yeah. a have and have not place. We've seen where the speeds have gone since, <laughs> which is all aero, right? Because yeah. they don't have the power now they had then. Exactly. 
How do you personally feel about that, actually? What the, like, today's indie cars, obviously Arrow is getting them to the speeds that they're at, but, you know, the cars engine-wise are very, very muted, so they're only putting out, what, 600, 600 plus, which is obviously keeping the speeds down to the 230 range. Um, you know, you grew up in an era where it was way more dangerous and, and you know, bravery really was a factor in your ability to go fast. Um, how do you feel about the current kind of culture of safety that's out there? Generally speaking, I'd like to see the cars much more powerful yeah. and more difficult to drive. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and the thing that's got to go is aero. Right. They are just so aerodynamic now. Yeah. Because even NASCAR's in on that now. Yeah, of course. They spend more time in the wind tunnel than Formula One blows to. Yeah, yeah. For a much narrower window to work with. Well, that's the thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have no window. Right. I mean, really, I mean... I'm, I'm curious on, like you said, you went, you, you had a little bit to drink last night. I'm curious, what is, is David Hobbs a drinking man? Like, what's your what's your go-to? I'm, I'm told it's wine. Wine and gin and tonic. Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. all right. I don't like beer much. I used to drink beer a lot in England okay. uh, when I was a kid. Well, that's well, like a rite of passage. And it's warm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, the only reason American beer is so cold is because it tastes like <laughs> So you have, to, <laughs> you have to have it cold. Yeah, yeah. So, the the, so it anesthetizes you on the way down. Right. If American right. beer warms up, it's just disgusting. Well, <laughs> they say it's like having sex in a canoe Well, because it's close to water. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, when I started coming over here racing Formula 5000, I used to drink Stingers. Do you know what Stinger is? <laughs> no. Not a clue. I'm excited. Don't bother. Hey, good. <laughs> <laughs> very, very tasty. What, right. It's rum and uh, vodka or something. Anyway, they are really, really good. Rum All mixed right. with vodka? We're bringing it back. No, was it? No. Was it? The liqueur. Uh, see, I forgot. We have to ask the barman, but. I used to like stingers. <laughs> but you have about four of those, you know, in the morning. Um, and then you go drive an F5000 car. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is, well, try not to do that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of my favorite cars of all time. You got to race at Le Mans. And you've gotten to drive the John Wire GT40, which is iconic. And then you got to drive a John Wire 917, which is one of my favorites. Um, you got to race for Honda F1. When they were kind of starting out, and I think I read something that your one of your mechanics was went on to be president of Honda Global. So you were right in the middle of like a very iconic set of programs, very early into your career. Yeah. When I think of the cars I drove, if I had one of them now, I'd be a multimillionaire. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the GT40 was fantastic to drive. Yeah. Especially to me then, because you know, the drive for someone like John Wire and Ford, Gulf, uh, was just a gold, was a dream come true. Yeah. The 908 was probably quicker, but the Wire team, we managed to beat them all the time. Okay. And won the World Championship twice, 68, 69. Uh -huh. Won Le Mans twice. Uh, not me, of course. <laughs> but that was a fantastic long distance car to drive. And then, of course, Honda, Mr. Honda, was very much of an engineer. And, you know, he, he believed in racing, yeah. improved the breed. And, I mean, he took on the most... I mean, he didn't start the company until 1946. And by the mid-50s, he's winning the TT, he's winning world championships right. with his bikes, and they got faster and faster and faster. 
and he didn't, wasn't making cars. Then the Japanese government tried to stop him making cars because they said, we don't need another car manufacturer. We've got Toyota and we've got Nissan. We don't really need uh, another car manufacturer. Anyway, he persisted and um, and then joined the World Championship with, Rich, with uh, Ronnie Butnam. And then Richie Ginther won the Mexican Grand Prix. Yes. And then in 68, John Surtees was driving for them. And they were developing, Mr. Honda was absolutely convinced that air-cooled was the way to go. Yeah. And they had that big V8 air-cooled. And the whole car was made of magnesium. <laughs> and the engine was hung off a kind of pylon. Really? Uh, so the whole thing was unbelievably flexible. Right. And Joe Slesser was killed in France, no, at Rouen, going down the hill after the start. And, um, because magnesium, once it sets fire, you, you can't, it. can't pull it out. Yeah. So it burnt to a pile of ash. <laughs> and then uh, later on that year, John Surtees was getting interested in me driving for him in either Formula 1 or Formula 5000. And he got me a drive in the second car at Monza. And I had been to Silverstone and tested with him. I tested with the, with the V8 air-cooled their car, yeah. entirely their car. And then Lola had built them a chassis for the, v, for the V12 water cooler. Right, right. And I tested both. Um, and in the uh, V12, I broke the lap record at Silverstone in the Honda, with, which was held at the time by Chris Amon in the Ferrari. Okay. So that was yeah. pretty happy about it's that. a big day. And then they asked me to drive at Monza. But when I got there, they wanted me to type, try both. So I had to drive the air-cooled one and then the... V12, and in the end, on like Saturday, they said, "Well, which one do you want to drive?" I said, "Well, I'd, well, I'd. but I didn't qualify very well because I'd driven both. I hadn't really done much qualifying, oh. and I drove and I qualified about 15th. And John was on the pole, and I was humming right along, and uh, I keep meaning to try and find a uh, a lap chart, but I think I got up. You know, I moved up the field quite a lot, and um, and it dropped a valve in the end. And, I, and it looked like I was going to drive for them in 69. But at the end of 68, they pulled out of Formula 1 because all their best engineers were in the Formula 1 team. Mm -hmm. Right. And they said, we are going to make road cars and we're going to make them, we're going to, you know, yeah. look at the American market. Right. And they need catalytic converters because of all these new emission laws that were coming yeah, sure, in at the time. Sure. And they said, well, we want to design an engine that doesn't need a catalytic converter. We'll so they put all their top guys onto making the first CVCC engine, Civic. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And um, so they did race, so I didn't drive it anymore. But, but many years later, 1993, I'd been a Honda dealer for four years. Yeah. And uh, I was on the dealer council. We had a trip to Japan. And uh, we went to the factory and we went to the test track. And uh, we looked at the Odyssey, which was brand new I'm sure that's what we're driving now hadn't appeared yeah I was, it wasn't here yet I mean, it wasn't anywhere I mean we yeah. and I drove it it was pouring with rain I had about six dealers in there <laughs> and we had this thing up to about 110 110 yes. <laughs> yes and old Dave Conan sitting in the front saying go go, go. <laughs> and all the guys in the back are absolutely going white as yeah, shit yeah yeah freaking out <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then we went to see the head cheese Mr. Kawamoto 
who was now the worldwide head chief. Yeah. And as we trooped into his office, he leapt to his feet and came rushing over to me and said, Ah, David Hobson. Hobson, I must apologize. All my fault. Your engine blew in Monza in 1968. Oh, my God. Uh, all my fault. I apologize. I apologize. Of course, all these other dealers are going, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he re- recognized me and remembered me. Wow. Years he back. was he one, of the, one yeah. of the guys. Yeah. Didn't miss a beat. Didn't miss a beat. That's unreal. awesome. So during that era, you drove, you know, that's still, even among guys like us who weren't alive then, that's still considered the golden era yeah. of, of F1 drivers. I don't care about statistics. I want to know who was the coolest guy to have a beer with. He's like David Hobbs. Yeah, me. <laughs> a very cool guy to have a beer with was Jimmy Clark. Really? Yeah. Well, he didn't drink much. Because he's notoriously be, was kind of quiet, right? Yeah, he was. But he was good fun. Um, and, of course, Graham Hill was a laugh a minute. I mean, he was big jokester, big right. party goer. Right. And, and he had a lot of fun. Have you ever heard the term game? Guy with good game, really good with girls. Oh, he was. Who was who was who was the legend? Who was who was the guy that you Sterling. knew? Like? Sterling. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's got to be a story. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not for this. Not for I mean, we weren't really there for the fun, but sure. Uh, although I say that, I think in those days people were there. Because they genuinely like driving fast. Wanted right. to be there, yeah. Right. They liked the scene. They liked the whole camaraderie of it, even though people would basically die like flies around you. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, you've got all these kids coming up. I don't know that Max Verstappen would be one of them, but, you know, they, their dads, if you've got a lot of money, you buy the get a go-kart and you start him off to, to, with a goal of maybe getting to Formula 1 right? because you know that if he does get there and does well then he's going to make millions right? Yeah, right. You know, just like an Arnold That's Palmer or just like a Tiger Woods or a, or a Roger Federer yeah. you know, it's another sport now that you can make millions in right? And uh, but you have to start real early right? and and fathers start their kids off with that intention right? Um, whereas we all went because that's exactly what we wanted to do. Right. right. So right. it ends up, it's a passion at that point. It's not a, it's not a chore. No. You know, and it's, you're, you're making the decision to go on your own. Yeah. You're not being force fed it. And no. I assume there were, obviously gentlemen drivers have been around through the entirety of the cool. sport, but, yeah. but I get the impression there were more guys who could make it in that era based on talent or a will to, to work through it. Well, obviously you had to have a very strong desire. Yeah. Because you knew there was a damn good chance you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. Well, I was extremely lucky. Never to get hurt. Who was the driver you were the closest to that we lost? Well, I was pretty close to Jimmy. Yeah. And um, Paul Hawkins, of course, I was very close to him. Um, he and I drove together in 68, and we went to Jimmy Clark's funeral. And I went with Mike Spence when we were at the back of the church. The eulogy was, you know, very moving. And we were pretty teary-eyed, me and Mike Spence, and um, two weeks later I was at Mike Spence's funeral, because right. he stood in for Jimmy at Indy and got killed almost straight away, Yeah. and the wheel hit him on the head. Um, we lost Scarf Yoddy, you know, about a month later, a month after that, Joe Slesser got, uh, yeah, Joe Slesser got killed, and Joe and I were pretty friendly, because we'd raced a lot at Le Mans together. Um, and he used to speak broken English and his French accent, and uh, 
Yeah, we had some good times with him. Jimmy's had the most effect on all of us, though. Sure. Because you thought, oh, shit. He's untouchable. If he can get killed, right. yeah, I suppose was, we really can get killed. He yeah. was sort of the bigger-than-life character in the paddock, yeah. I assume. Yes, exactly. So during that awful period where you know, people are, like you said, dropping like flies, at any point are you saying to yourself, I, maybe I, this isn't for me, I need to look at other options in life, or is it just, eh, it's part of the, the job title, so i got to go to work next weekend? Pretty much what we did. <laughs> um, I just <clears throat> never quite sure how uh, my wife Margaret put up with it. Yeah. I mean, she seemed to be so all right with it. And I can't, the, the stress must have been pretty awful. Yeah. Well, it had to be tough for a spouse because, you know, today we've got internet. We have a, a closed circuit feed. So if you're at the track, you've got timing monitor, or you've got monitors right there that can show you everything. In that era, somebody has an accident halfway across the track. At best, you hear a PA announcement that there's been an accident, and that's it. Um, did that create almost like a darker cloud or anything in terms of sort of knowing what's going on, that lack of information that makes it a little bit more paradox. Terrible. Yeah. The worst thing, you'd be testing with Silverstone or Sneston, which are long tracks. Right. When you'd be in the pits, November. Right. F***ing cold. Right. Freezing cold. Grail day. Might be draining, might not. And you, a couple of you there testing. And somebody go off. Then there'd be silence. They'd come around here, you know, we'll give another minute to. And literally, you know, about five minutes later, old Sid, Silverstone Sid, who drove an ex World War II ambulance, which is an old Bedford truck, would do about 35 mile an hour flat out. Downhill, yeah. He would poddle off round the track uh, in his oval. We just had regular work ovals, you know. And he'd go out, and obviously, 99 times out of 100, the person would be just sitting by his car because it had broken. But I mean, by the time Sid got there, <laughs> would be at least 10 minutes yeah. after. Right. You know, we all started, well, we'll give him another five minutes, and then everybody go and have a look. But, um, <clears throat> well, if you'd been trapped in the car, or it'd been on fire, or. Needed immediate help. Yeah. yeah. You know, by the time he got there, it all blew up. Yeah. And that was that was the norm. So that was absolutely the norm. Yeah. So to Snetton, there wouldn't be anybody at Snetton at all. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the like, There's no Sid. The majority yeah. of tests right now, you know, if you're going to do a, for, a proper test, and, you know, we both come from sports cars, usually track requires X number of ambulances. Oh. you got to have corner workers. workers. I assume you're going to Snetterton. There's no one around the track at all. No, so. not even close. Yeah. No yeah. marshals. No, nothing. Right. Oh, no. Never had marshals. In 1967, I'd been a Jaguar apprentice. I was not a good apprentice because by then I had my loads to lead. My last year of my apprenticeship, 61, I ended in December 61. And during 61, I rose elite. I told you I had 18 races. And so I missed a lot of work. <laughs> and the apprentice supervisor thought I was just the worst fucking apprentice they had ever, <laughs> ever had. And told me. Yeah. yeah, running around playing race car driver. Uh, said, I don't care if you never darken my door so again. You know. <laughs> well, a few weeks later, Lofty England asked me in to test an experimental jag. <laughs> and I walked past Mr. Barker's office. Okay. And all of us walked by. Hey, Mr. Barker, back again. <laughs> <laughs> this damn kid. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So anyway, uh, <coughs> fast forward a few years to 67. By now, I've 
race, and I raced a Lola T70 in 1965, so I'd raced big cars. And um, Lofty rang me up and said, look, we, we brought the old XJ13 out, and we're thinking of racing it, <coughs> and we'd like you to test it at Myra, which is the motor industry research establishment just outside Coventry. And I said, well, what about Norman Dewis, who was their test driver? He said, well, I don't really want Norman to drive it, because I want somebody who's driven other stuff. You know, Norman's just Jim Jack. And he won't give us a very unbiased report. He said, I want somebody who's going to just tell us, you know, how did it stack up to, yeah. you know. And um, ironically, at the same time, I was now driving for John Surtees. We go to Stettenham, and the Aston guy, remember those Lola 70 coupes that had that big channel down the back where the, all the pipes, you know, the induction pipes yeah. all stick up? Uh, I mean, you see them in vintage racing a lot. And they said, it's, you know, we think the airflow screwed up, blah, 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 blah. So very broadly, had a big flat back, took the top off the car, and just put a big flat sheet of aluminum. Right, it's covered. So the car, uh, I, think it was car, I don't think it was fuel injected, I think it was carved. It was just sticking right up in the air. Yeah. You know? so off I go. <laughs> and there's a long straight at Snetterton, which runs parallel to the road, the A13, which is the main road from London to Norwich. Okay. okay. And it runs parallel to the track. So, you know, you, you come out of the, first, the last corner and there'll be a car doing 70 odd down the bottom. Right, you'll literally go next to the highway there. The yeah. next thing is you flash by it. Right. And at the end of this long straight, it was a very tight hairpin with, of course, no run-up area. Naturally. Uh, and just a big earthen bank. Right, like a big earth. So if yeah, you hit mound, it, it'd be yeah. a great launch pad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they all were in those days. Um, anyway, because in those days, as I've always, I'm, I'm always telling people on the tally as much as I can, <clears throat> you've got to remember these days, everything is so data-driven. I mean, the pits say, yeah. your left front tyre is going down. Yeah. Or don't do this, do that. Or right, you, right, right. Your fuel pressure warning. But in those yeah, days, yeah. the driver was the data. Where are you braking? You, know, you go tell them exactly where you were braking. Yeah. And the other thing would be, of course, how fast you're going. What are you coming off the corner at? Well, I'm coming off the corner, I'm doing I'm doing 5.5 five as I exit the corner, yeah. you know, as near as I can tell. Yeah. So you're going to be watching the gauge all the time. And those tachometers were those, you know, they, they didn't, well, it's smooth. Yeah, but it wasn't the most reliable thing, too. <laughs> no. The big key here was, is it any quicker down the straight with this flat back on or not? Well, of course, old Dumbo here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching the rev counter, watching the where I'm braking, watching the rev counter, watching the weather. Okay, pulling exactly the same revs as it was before. Of course, I clamp on the brakes and this f***ing car <laughs> spins like a top because it has no downforce right, on the back. Right. It's just got this flat tray on it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, old idiot boy here. I hadn't really taken that into my calculations, but I brake. And, um, and it spun like a top, and luckily it did spin like a... And it just wore off so much speed that I never hit the bank. Right. Uh, didn't do the tyres any good, but, um, but I mean, that was a case. I mean... That's testing. The hairpin yeah, there. That's testing back then, yeah. And, uh, you know, they compare... They always say, well, who was the best driver? Who, I mean, how do you compare Michael Schumacher and Fangio? And I, the, the first thing I say is, well, would Michael Schumacher have wanted to do races for three hours long, f***ing red-hot exhaust pipe right there, fuel filler cap right here, when they come in and you pour it in with pipe here, yeah. no belt, and wearing a shirt like this, and a leather helmet. Uh, would he have been 
as committed as he was, and would he have done some of the things that he did pull off? You know, I mean, he did some pretty dodgy bits of driving. Yeah. yeah. You know, trying to drive people off the road. Force them to lift. And of course, yeah. everybody says, well, they didn't do that in the old days. Well, no fucking way they'd do that in the old days because you both get killed. Yeah. So we do a pass along question on the show, and uh, our previous guest was Max Jones, who is the. Yeah. You, you know Max Jones, project manager for Ganassi's NASCAR team and former driver. And his question, well, the first comment he had was, he was always the guy I wanted to hang out with more. That's what he said about you. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's what he said. And then the question was, what helped you decide to retire from racing? Age. <laughs> Age. Yeah. Simple. I, Simple. Yeah, pretty much. I probably outstayed my welcome in racing by probably, I don't know, seven or eight years. The worst thing that happened to me was I drove for BMW, 1977, 8, 9, 80. And then uh, I was sort of winding down then, and uh, I drove for John Fitz, Patrick. And he had a 935, and then he had a, and then he had a 956 and a 962. And we had some terrific races together, him and I. So I had a huge revival of my racing fortunes in the, in the 80s. And... Um, we so nearly won Le Mans a couple of times, and we had some other wins that were just taken away from us in the most obscure fashions. And uh, but it revived my enthusiasm, and um, and I drove for Reinhold Yost a couple of times at Le Mans after John had pulled out, and then I drove for Britain for and for Richard Lloyd. Yes, in his 935, which Nigel Stroud had sort of redesigned and rebodied, and this thing was going to be dynamite around the corners and about the same speed down the straight well it was 20 miles an hour slower than the Jags down the straight at Le Mans and I drove with Damon Hill and um, a big Swedish kid uh, whose name I can never remember Stephen Anskar yeah yeah yeah. and we dropped out about halfway through and um, by that time I was what 51 or 2 okay so I thought yeah yeah I suppose I better give up, really. Uh, and I had started doing the TV. I'd already, well, I'd already been, been doing, doing that for a while, yeah. TV by then for nearly 20 years. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this year, I'm just finishing my 40th year in TV. That's fantastic. So, um, well, it's not fantastic. It's f***ing miraculous, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, and uh, so I, I just retired because I knew I wasn't as competitive as I could be. I'd always been as quick or quicker than my co-drivers every time I drove at the morning and we like that. And suddenly, you know, a Damon drove with me. I mean, he was quicker than I was. And I thought, well, you know, it's bloody pointless going on if you know you're not going to win. Out, yeah. really. um, I've never actually officially retired. Well, you shouldn't. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, if you see <laughs> Max again, say hi to him. Remember Max Jones? He was, he was a good fun guy, yeah. yeah. Um, and he used to work a lot with uh, Tommy, didn't he, Campbell? Yes, yeah. he did. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. He was also a fun guy, but I must say, some of his tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the fact that you're on Twitter. I like that you're on Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he's gone, but he's gone bloody mad politically, hasn't he? I mean, he's just... He's a conservative guy. <laughs> yeah. He's a little conservative. <laughs> I have noticed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's getting pretty into it. But what I just learned is that you're big on Twitter. Well, he, yeah. yeah. Dave, David. So I just learned is that you, you really pay attention to Twitter. Yeah, well, I do a bit. I've got about 30,000 followers. Um, you, I like you say about. We've Ryan's one of the most popular sports car drivers yeah, out there. Like You've got 14 like 12. Or something, yeah. <laughs> How many? Like 14,000 or yeah, something like that. Well, 
I thought I was doing. I had nine thousand before I ever went on to Twitter. I had nine thousand followers, and I didn't even do it. Uh, somebody. Oh, you just made an account, account for you. Mm. Huh? Somebody had made an account yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Frank, I don't know how to. Do, I don't know about it really, but Frank Wilson from Speed set it up for me. <laughs> okay. Got me on it. But what really put me in my place and everybody else was that Dale Earnhardt Jr. didn't do Twitter. And then he started to do Twitter and had 400,000 followers. Straight away. In like a yeah, day, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. First tweet. <laughs> yeah. You've tweeted me twice. You actually follow me on Twitter. And what? I remember I got that tweet. I was at Coda last year. I remember when it happened. I was oh, like, yeah? wow, David Hobbs is following me. And I showed Petey. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, because you guys know each other oh, pretty yeah, well. And I was yeah. like, well, I thought it was neat. So part of the pass along question is uh, you now get to ask a question of our next guest, which we'll be having dinner tonight with Hurley Haywood. Oh, will it? Yes, we will. Yeah. Oh, you guys yeah. all hang out down here in Florida when it's warm, which is. You go out to Jacksonville. We, uh, St. Augustine? St. Augustine. Yeah. 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 So we got a nice little three hour drive. I suppose you could ask him, what was it like driving with Peter Gregg? It's a good transition. That allows us to blame you. Yes. <laughs> so, one of the things that I. Oh, two things. Okay. What was the joke you told at the Motorsports Hall of Fame last year about Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner? Well, talk about <laughs> irony and coming back. Years ago, when I first started working for CBS, <coughs> I used to commentate Ken Squire. He got me the job with CBS. Yeah. In a way. Uh, so <laughs> we're at Charlotte, and they're having an IMSA race at Charlotte, and Bruce Jenner and Lynn St. James are driving uh, a Mustang, but no. Yeah, Mustang. I think they were a Mustang. It was a Roush car. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. Old Lynn is leading the class, I think. Well, Bruce gets in. About two laps in, spins off. I said to Ken, well, that's what happens when you get a man to do a woman's job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want to, and Ken, I thought Ken was going to croak. <laughs> I mean, he's all over the floor of the... Of the, of the yeah, they like it behind us. But who would know that 25 right. years later, she I'll too. Two of this, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but how I got into TV was because, again, you know, I used to step into dead man's shoes because, you know, I mean, you used to read the paper every day. You know, you'd wait for someone to get killed right. and immediately ring up the team. Which, is, which was that normal, was which did. was acceptable absolutely, behavior. Absolutely acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Ken and Graham Hill are going to be the, you know, the commentator and the analyst on CBS. Uh. And, uh, of course, Graham got killed flying to those trees. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Ken rings me up and says, hey, look, do you, how do you fancy being, you know, working for CBS? And I said, that sounds great to me. Yeah, how do I do that? And he said, well, you have to go and meet um, uh, Clarence Cross. He's the vice president of sport. And he'll interview you. And then you... You know, we'll be off with a mixer. <coughs> well, I go and see a bloke, Clowns Cross, on the 52nd floor of wherever they are on Black Rock, which is the corner of, of 57th and Madison, I think. Yeah. I like to see old Clowns, got the blazer on my tie and all that, dressed up, you know. 
Hi, hey, David. What's your name again? David Hall. Oh, David Hall. Okay. And you race? Yeah, I race, yeah. Uh, well, um, well, what have you done? I said, well, you know, I was the Formula 5000 champion. And I said, uh, what's Formula 5000? <laughs> right. I said, well, Formula 5000 is kind of like Indy cars, but it's different. Oh, uh, how different? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, because I did the Indy 500. Oh, did you win it? No. Oh. <laughs> um, and I mean, this interview just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And the sweat was pouring down my back, and I'm sure the top lip was all. And if ever a look said, don't call us, we'll call you, you got it was it. him. Yeah, I got it. So yeah. Kenzie had to go, and I said, not well at all. And I always <laughs> said, never mind. You know, um, and then I always say, you know, on the telly, people don't like to hear I say luck has a, an amazing part in all our lives it really does you know luck right place right time and you know and then it was oh yeah but you got to make your own luck but <clears throat> that, that, that was about November about October November of 75 and in 76 I got a deal a friend of mine got me some coke money to do the 24-hour race Coca-Cola Coca-Cola yeah. 24-hour race <laughs> and also to do the 500. So, Benny Parsons, when there was a three-car team, there was Peter Gregg, uh, uh, not, not her, Peter Gregg, Brian Redmond, John Fitzpatrick, me, um, <coughs> a couple of other guys driving the second car, and me and Benny were going to drive the third car with Coke on it. And um, that was the year they had that water in the fuel do you remember all that? Mm, not a clue, yeah. Yeah, and they had water in the fuel so that stopped the rays and the, of course the fuel was all supplied by track. So they strain it and fiddle and <laughs> around and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, you know, off we go again. And um, Brian and Peter Gregg and John Fitzpatrick won it. Uh, we came 10th. We had never did run properly our car. Um, and then I was going to do the 500 in Benny's backup car oh, cool. he was driving a, an Impala and his backup car was an old Monte Carlo or something so so no point in me going all the way back to England so I wait over there and Ken Squire put on a radio show from the Hawaiian Inn uh, the, the Ken Squire you know NASCAR out and it was very popular with the drivers and um, and Ken had been on at CBS for years you've got to do NASCAR. You gotta do NASCAR. NASCAR's where it is, yeah. you know, it's really it's all gonna be now. And they all say, What the hell's NASCAR? It's down in the south and then the redneck stuff no, he said it's it's gonna be big again. So Clarence Cross comes down with his wife to watch the five hundred. And I suppose he comes down a bit early to get some respite from the New York sure, winter. Yeah. And I go on Ken's show. And I'd had about two or three gin and tonics. <laughs> so I was yes. right on the top of the cam and hadn't started to go down the backside. And uh, we had a hysterical five or ten minutes. And I'm taking the piss out of Richard Petty and yeah. Cale Yarber's hair and, well, you know. It, it, was, it was funny. <laughs> and Clarence Cross was there with his wife. And when I went to sit down, his wife says to me, good Lord, she said, you shouldn't be driving race cars. You should be on the stage. 
So I said, well, don't tell me, tell him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and Clarence said, well, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I see a different side of you now. We'll see what can come up, you know. And so from then on, I could ring him with some confidence. Yeah. And finally, in August, they were going to use Roger McCluskey to do the Pocono 500. And suddenly, in the end, Roger decided he was going to drive in it. So I stood in for Roger McCluskey and... Um, and I never missed a race from CBS for the next 20 years. So I left in 1996. So I was, I was born. Well, 1995. So, uh, <coughs> yeah, I mean, suddenly that first year, they paid me 800 quid, $800. But they flew me first class from England. And huh. back. It's not bad. And uh, I, uh, well, to clinch the deal, I'd been in Atlanta. And I was going to go back to England. Because there were, in those days, there were no direct flights from Atlanta. And, you know, so I had to go through New York. And I had like a three-hour layover, and of course, getting in and out of the airport in those days was, you know, so simple. So I thought, I'll go and see those guys at CBS just to make sure, you know. And I nipped down there, and it was like five. It was late in the evening, yeah. late afternoon, early evening. And um, I went in, saw Clarence. He introduced me to his boss, and he just said to me, "Be factual. Don't talk down. Don't don't make it too complicated. Don't sound too techy. You know, uh, blah blah blah." Keep it amusing. I hear you. I hear you can be amusing. Be amusing if you want to be. Blah blah blah. See ya. Huh. And so I got home and <coughs> rang him up a couple of days later. So well, how was it? You know, and they said that's all right. Oh, okay. Uh, any other shows? Oh, I don't know about that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then about a week after that, they called and said we'd like to do the Trenton IndyCar. So did that. And a couple of weeks later, we did the U.S. Grand Prix. Which is my first Grand Prix, that's seventy six. Wow. Grand Prix from the Glen. Um and like I say, then I never missed a race. And then they started doing NASCAR in nineteen seventy nine. And of course I did the seventy nine race when the you know, the punch up Yeah, when they're, um, they're very famous with Ken and um and I always say NASCAR should give Ken Squire they should be paying him about a million bucks a year. A royalty. Because he his undivided effort it snowed in New York. That's right. On the yeah. northeast. It's the perfect storm. The race was, you know, okay. Kale and Donny Arson were you know, streets ahead. They just followed each other around for about 10 laps. Suddenly, Donny goes, you know. Kale pushes him down into the dirt on the inside. Yeah. And he pushes back and they start touching and rubbing. And the next thing, Kale up in the banking and boom. So they get out of the car, they start yeah, fighting. Yeah. Richard Petty, who was a very distant third, wins it. So yeah, that's his eighth. And he had win. been out for a while. Like, he hadn't been the man anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah, it yeah. was like this hero so win. the hero yeah. win. Richard Petty yeah. wins again at Daytona. Yeah. Oh, the Masters back. Meanwhile, Bobby Allison on his slowing down lap, probably came second, I can't remember, on his slowing down lap, he stops and joins in the fight. Yeah. So <laughs> now we've got not? Ken Squire calling a fight from the booth with, <laughs> yeah. with me shouting out as well. And and they had like six million viewers. Yeah. They didn't know what they were getting. I think they were expecting they might get a couple or maybe one. You know, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And they had this huge <laughs> audience. I thought, oh, my God. you know, And it was blacked out. You know, Bill France. That's right. Yeah, that's was right. Very uh, dubious about this TV. Isn't it? He said that's going to take people from from our seats. Right. People right. will be. Like, we ain't we ain't going to show that in Florida. We ain't going to show it in Southern Atlanta, um, Georgia, and you know, 
No, I don't think it's a good this TV. I don't think TV is a very good idea at all. And of course, at the moment, you know, NASCAR's in the middle. They've like their own channel. They got like <laughs> ten billion dollars from yeah. TV over the next ten years. Yeah, and all came because of Ken Squire. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I got out. Really, right. just bloody lucky that. Yeah. I did those two races. Lucky I didn't go home and come back. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Kind of not getting. And it was lucky that. Clarence Cross had already arrived in Daytona yeah. when he could have come the next day because this sure. was probably about the Wednesday. You know, yeah, you can't you can't make that luck. Like that's real luck. Oh, that was yeah. just real dumb luck. Yeah. Um, so most people listening now know know David Hobbs, the commentator, and obviously we we skipped over most of the the, the last twenty years of doing F one and and whatnot. But uh, of the of the broadcast teams that you've worked with, who's the guy that you'd want to get a drink with? Well, I tell you what. <clears throat> All the guys I've worked with over the years in TV have been terrific. Uh, but I suppose if you're going to go for a drink with somebody, uh, you really wouldn't have a better uh, drinking partner than, uh, well, two. You know, Bob Varsha and, huh. um, okay. and Lee. Okay. Yeah. Well, we know Lee can drink. Yes, we, we know this know for that. a fact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that for a fact too. Bob, we sat down. With <laughs> 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 uh, we sat down with Bob doing this thing uh, last year, and, and we've known Bob through the sports cars for for years. But uh, um, is there? Is there a, I've never seen it. Is there an unbuttoned version of Bob Varsha? Does he let his quaffed hair down? He doesn't really. Okay. No. Uh, but I, I I told somebody many many years ago. That Bob Varsha is the absolute perfect traveling companion. <laughs> I mean, you can share a room with him, and he's not going to do anything stupid. Um, and very amenable. Where should we go for dinner? Spanish, Mexican, French? Hey, I don't care. You know, let's go. Never quibble about sharing the bill. I mean, that's the thing that drives me nuts. Is when you go out to dinner with somebody and it's time to share the bill, and then some guy says. I only had one glass of wine, you uh, had two. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bob never, ever, ever did anything like that. Yeah. And he was a great traveling companion. Um, we drove, because in those early days with ESPN, you know, we went to all the races. Um, yeah. I'm glad we don't go now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we go to Japan and we always had fun. And, and yeah, we used to drink, not like we do with Lee, but uh, <laughs> Bob doesn't have a problem. Bob, is what you're saying? Yeah. Bob, no, Bob, Bob, uh, Bob enjoys the drink. Yeah, yeah. very yeah, much yeah. so. He enjoys the laugh, and uh, and you know, lightly, he's just a tremendously authoritative voice in yes. in, the, in the booth. Yes, and he really can control the show, uh, controls everybody that's on it, and it's it's really good. Knows his stuff. And when the director suddenly says, oh, go, Bob, I mean, he just goes, you know, just like, and Lee's the same. Yeah. I can't do that. They can. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Lee's, Lee's a good traveling companion. Um, but uh, Bob probably, I mean, Ken Squire was much more, he knew a lot more other people. When Bob and I used to go off, we were together. So it's kind of you guys were a team together. We were a team Ken, together. Ken had some other day, party you know, he had to go with. Whereas when I was working with Ken, you know, Ken would always be out with somebody else, yeah. you know, like the the Petty Boys or somebody, you know, and um, I was sort of kicking around on my own a lot. But How many nights with Lee Diffie can you even remember? 
There's a lot I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Lee's going to come on this show and be like, why? Yeah, he's going <laughs> to. Why won't you let it go? Everyone <laughs> seems to have a Lee Diffie story yeah. that we can't tell. Yeah. So, so those but, are friends who were David Hobbs's rivals as a driver. Like anybody used to butt heads with on track, off track in your career? Jackie Stewart and Brian Redman were a couple of my nemesis. Uh, when I was just about to go into Formula One, Jackie came along out of nowhere, won that bloody Formula Three championship for Ken Tyrrell in the Cooper. Yeah. So he was suddenly everywhere, everywhere I wanted to be, uh, and made an unbelievably good champion. And I spent nearly a week with him at the, this year's uh, Monterey Classic. Hmm. And we were both their guests of Rolex. <coughs> and he was really, I spent more time with him this year than I have done for 30 years. And uh, we got on very well again. And, uh, you know, you can see why. And I mean, he was a, a, an unbelievable driver. Um, Brian, again, uh, did took everything I wanted and was also very underrated. Yeah. Jackie Stewart was certainly not underrated. Won three championships and deserved every one of them. Um, and if he'd hung around, he probably would have won a fourth. But he again, you know, when Francois Severe was killed, that was it. You know, he yeah. just about had it. And, of course, we all owe Jackie a tremendous debt of gratitude for his um, endeavours and efforts to make racing safe. Yes. Yes. I mean, he got some terrible flack team owners, track owners. I went to Mid-Ohio to drive the Formula 5000 car in 1971. Jackie was there driving for uh, Eric Broadley in the Lola, mm -hmm. in the uh, L&M Lola, the very short stubby yeah. one. Yeah. And at turn nine, where you come up over the hill and just, you know, the, the downhill drop. Yeah. Yes. Right on the apex with a couple of bloody great trees. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Jackie said, I'm not going to drive a race car where there's a tree right there. And uh, <laughs> a chap called uh, Les Griebling owned the track and he had made the track out of, on his farm. Okay. Um, and Les Griebling used to drive around everywhere on race weekends on a tractor with bib overalls, you know. Um, <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> and he said, I ain't cutting no f***ing trees down for no sawn off f***ing Scotsman. Well, <laughs> <coughs> Jackie Stewart was driving Carl Haas and was already at at least one, one of it, two of his championships. He's a three-time world champion or two. I think he's a three-time. Three. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, I don't to leave. And, uh, Guess what? When we got there on Saturday morning for qualifying, they'd gone. Nice. Trees had gone. And um, apparently, very shortly thereafter, somebody in a Trans Am car went off there on the approach to that corner, spun off, and went right over the, the holes in the ground where the stumps had been. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, and Jackie fought for it because he had the, he had the clout. He had yeah. big clout. I mean, a three-time yeah. world champion. When, pe when you talk, people listen. Yeah. Um, I taught, they'd tell you <laughs> off. Uh, and he, I mean, he, um, he, he did a lot, a huge yeah. amount. I, um, he, after the guardrail, he, he made it put guardrail up everywhere. And it would be 72 at uh, Watkins Glen 
Formula 5000 race. I'm leading by miles um, in Carl Hogan's Lola. And at the end of the straight, there was no you know, bus stop like there is now. <coughs> through the S's and then straight down to that downhill right hand. Yeah, right. carousel, yeah. yeah. And go downhill. If you go off the track on the left, it also just went downhill down a grassy bank. Okay. Quite a long grassy bank down some bushes and trees and stuff at the bottom. And as I braked for the corner, the bottom right, uh, you know, parallel rods on a Lola, he was very keen on parallel arms. Okay, uh, yeah, like tra uh, trailing arms. Yeah. And uh, the bottom one came adrift. So the wheels now sort of flapping about like a supermarket trolley. Yeah. <coughs> and it spun around and around and around and slammed into the guardrail, just slid down the guardrail and stopped. <laughs> if it hadn't been for that guardrail, I'd have gone down that bank and who knows what Yeah. I mean, it could have rolled over. And of course, roll hoops in those days were about like these headphone hoops, you know. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't have done anything. And um, so I always told Jackie the other day, I, I really owe him my, I owe my life to him because if he hadn't had that guardrail put there, uh, I could have got killed there easy. Yeah. Jackie did a lot. So what was the question? <laughs> uh, who are your rivals? <laughs> yeah, who are the <laughs> rivals? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because you went through some really sketchy eras, and from what I can tell, there never was really any major accident. And I never got hurt. Wow. Brian Redmond's comment on that when he weren't going fast up there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that 512 yeah. is the most iconic, the best-known Ferrari, and the most expensive Ferrari in the world, and it never won a f***ing thing. And we, sh <laughs> and we should have won everything. everything. Yeah, yeah. And we were on the pole at Daytona. We're leading by miles. And he gets involved in a crash where some other guy has spun. And then as he and everybody else slows down, they go into this huge cloud of dust and smoke and shit like that. Some cunt in a Porsche 911 that we'd probably lapped about 100 times <laughs> runs into him. Right. So he put about 10,000 yards of duct tape on it and still came third. <laughs> Sebring leading there and he and Pedro Rodriguez got into a banging match down at the bottom end of what was the old real long circuit that yeah. went right down you know the yeah. far uh, north end of the track yeah. and he comes back and the tyres all shredded and he's buggered up the oil cooler and blah 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 and we come 10 <laughs> then we go to Le Mans and RSP himself his lordship says we need to change the engine now our engines were massaged by Traco out in California okay. mm. he stripped and rebuilt all the Ferrari engines and they ran like clockwork so we go to Le Mans and he tells Woody Woodard and Mark that he wants to put a new engine Ferrari have offered him a new engine for the race but he thinks we should put it in Mark and Woody are dead against it now because apart from the else, it was a hell of a job to change the engine and transmission in that car. So I had to hire a crane or something to lift it out. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> anyway, we changed the engine. Uh, and I think we were running. I'd done a stint or two, and he had done a stint or two. And then about 7 or 8 o'clock, the bloody thing blows up. We had given our engine to North American Racing Ferrari. Yes. And ART. Yes. And Tony Damoitz and Sam Posey came third using our engine, the uh, one we had taken out. Uh, and if they came third, I think we would have won it. Yeah. I mean, we were miles in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. Then we go to Watkins Glen for the final race, which is a six-hour race, 
and there's a can-am the next day. And um, we're on the pole again. Mark's leading by a country mile. And the bloody front steering post broke. <laughs> Luckily, it never broke or went wrong when I was driving it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, see, we, we would have walked Daytona, probably would have won Sebring, but the Mario and Brian and people were there in uh, those Ferrari 3-1, you know, the sports cars. Yeah. But we were still leading them. Le Mans, we shouldn't have been in with a chance, but I think we might have won it. Yeah. Um, because that was the year, I think, that old Seppi did his first bloody, yeah. you know, yeah. second back to first job. And I won the Formula 5000 Championship that year. Yeah. So I could have won the Formula 5000 Championship. Could have won Sebring, Daytona, maybe Le Mans, yeah. certainly Watkins Glen. I could have had a, a monster year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolute monster year. Instead of which, it was a good year, but I mean, it just... <coughs> that's one thing modern drivers don't have to contend with, is unreliability. You know, when Hamilton's engine blew in Malaysia, Yeah. I mean, they just hardly ever. They never In yeah, the yeah. old days, you know, whenever you went in a race, I mean, your first thought was not, gonna, am I going to win? Your first thought was, am I going to finish? Yes. Yeah. Right. Your second thought was, am I going to be alive at the end of this? <laughs> yeah. And your third thought was, well, I could win. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nowadays, you know, no one ever thinks about dropping out because it just doesn't happen. Yeah, they go forever. And um, so, obviously, you've got no shortage of stories out of the paddock. But why do you think it's not out there more that Johnny O'Connell tried to murder Dario Franchitti? Well, everybody knew that story. The fact was, I think that Dario tried to step in front of the car. I think he was thinking of committing suicide. <laughs> Court, <laughs> yeah. right? Then yeah, decided yeah, against absolutely. it. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing I'd like to hear, if you have one, if you don't, it's fine. Tell me the best Seepkin story I don't know. The best Seepkin story you don't know? Well, I suppose, the, do you know about the food fight? I've heard, okay, I do, but that's not like a out there in the public thing, so that would be a perfect way to end this. Well, it all starts with my nemesis, Brian Herman Thomas Redmond, Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> of Vero Beach, Florida. We had been to a Formula 5000 race at Mid Ohio, and we were having dinner at a place I think it was called Browns. It was it was quite a nice little restaurant, not far from the track. And for some extraordinary reason, we we're all sitting there at the end of dinner, and Brian walks up to me to say they were just leaving, and. He must have had a brain hemorrhage of some sort because right hand, close at hand, was a dessert trolley. So just as he's saying, well, see you at the next race or whatever, he suddenly picks up one of these chocolate pies and pushes it to my face. <laughs> as you do. As, as you do, exactly. <laughs> so I said, ah, oh, okay, well, don't worry, I'll remember that. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see you at the next race. See you, know, yeah, see you down the road, say hi to Marion, and you know, wiping the pie off the face. <laughs> well, then, some months later, we are at Seepkins. Yes. And he is in the long table that comes away from the, in the early inner bar. Yes. The, the cocktail bar. Well, there's a table that runs along the wall. And at the end of the table is a doorway that goes into the inner dining room, which they use as kind of for the busboy. Yes. yes. And you can go from there to the other side of the dining room by the bottom of those stairs. And I'm sitting at a table by the window, and I see Brian Redmond sitting on the end of this table. And I also, having, having a brain aberration, <laughs> think, 
you know, this could be the ideal opportunity. So I walk through the other door, uh, come up. So now I'm behind him, over his left shoulder. He has no idea I'm there. He's sitting on the end of the table, and I'm just around the corner behind this door, in this doorway. So I push a, you know, a, a pie in his face. <laughs> <laughs> and this leads to mayhem. Because when he had done it to me, we were in a strange restaurant. There was only a very, very few people in there. Yes. And uh, he was on his way out the door anyway. Right. This time, we're all right in the middle of dinner. And the dining room, of course, is full. Everybody. Of racing drivers, mechanics, you know. Everybody. In those days when Seepkins was right on full throttle. So immediately rolls, cutlery, and everything starts to fly. <laughs> um, cutlery. Oh, everything. <laughs> all right. And, of course, the owners of the hotel then... Pam and Doug Seepkin, Pam and Doug Leake, older <coughs> Pam said, hold it, 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 hold it. Let's go up to the tavern. Let's go up to the bar and we'll continue this up in the bar. <laughs> now, this is the owner of the hotel. So we all go up to the tavern, uh, which he, as you know, has got more racing stickers yes. and more history than yeah. any other yes. restaurant in the world. It's amazing. And we commence this food fight in seriousness and I mean <laughs> Pam the owner keeps rushing down to the kitchen in the main hotel and bringing back you know uh, cream um, aerosol all those aerosol yeah, creams yeah, yeah, yeah. she keeps coming back by the armload and giving them out and I mean we're all there's beer I mean the floor is about an inch thick in cream <laughs> foam cream and beer I mean my shoes were ruined my trousers were ruined <laughs> Everything was ruined. And this fight went on for, it seemed like hours. It was probably <laughs> 20 minutes. But, and she was aiding and abetting. I mean, she was going to get more reinforcements, right, more cool. beer, more sandwiches, more bread, more yeah, stuff to throw around. Yeah, so yeah. it was a pretty historic food fight. Yes. And uh, that was obviously a huge night at Seepkins for all of us. And uh, it's not the same these days, but it was a, it was a very memorable night. Yes. That's and poor old Pam passed away a couple of years ago. Right. Doug still remembers it. And Doug's now 86, and uh, he spends a lot of time with my young, youngest son, Guy. And uh, they reminisced about the old days at Seekins, but it was a fantastic place to go to. But that yeah. food fight was absolutely something else. It's uh, what legends are made of, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. All right. We don't, we don't want to keep Hurley waiting too long, but uh, you know, how much longer do you think you've got going for the, uh, the broadcast career? How long? Yeah. In my career? Yeah. Well, I believe we've got, I've got at least one more year because okay. <coughs> NBC had a four-year deal, which we're now coming to the end of. To the fourth, okay. And I had signed for the four years. Okay. And then about halfway through the year, they said, oh, good news, we've got one more year with Formula One. Bernie would only sign one year. He wouldn't sign a multi-year. We want a multi-year, but we want it. But anyway, we've got one more year. Cool. Yeah. And so it looks like I'm going to do next year. Okay, great. And then uh, who knows? I mean, whether they get it again. <coughs> I think if Liberty um, media takeover, they may have their own ideas about doing the TV. Sure. Right. Or they might be very happy with NBC doing it. Um, and if I stay on, well, obviously that's completely in the unknown. Um, yeah. I wouldn't mind doing a few more years. I suppose I should. I could try and beat Murray, Re Murray, uh, Smith, uh, Murray uh, Walker's record, but. But I've done 40 years, so by the end of next year, it'll be 41 years. It'll probably be time to retire. Okay. You've, you've played David Hobbscap, very <laughs> famous movie character. What is the absolute best racing movie in your mind? Best racing movie in my mind is probably Grand Prix. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. James Garner, because yeah. they did a phenomenal job with very limited special effects in those days. Yeah. And they they mucked up those Formula Fords to make them look yeah. like Grand Prix cars. Yeah. And the way that John Frankenheimer split the footage between the real thing with the real F1 and yeah. the not real thing, yeah. I thought for that day, yes, yeah, it was, was very, very, that. very good. And I was always a bit of a James Garner fan. I used to love him. Uh, I heard he could actually drive. And he could drive, yeah. and he used to call me Davy. So, because <laughs> okay. cool. I was going to drive for him, that's another very long story. That was a John Surtees story. But I was going to drive for James Garner in the Formula 5000 team in America, but it didn't happen. So I drove for John huh? Surtees instead. But um, okay. yeah, so I, th I think Le Mans's pretty good. Um, they also had some very good footage, uh, very good. Yeah. And uh, one of the funniest things out of that was, of course, that. David Piper supplied a lot of the cars, yes, the 917s, yeah. a couple of Ferraris. And they were doing a scene, and they have a crash going into White House. And David Piper did, in fact, as a result of that crash, lose his. the bottom of his leg right, yes, right. From, from the knee down. So you could hardly tell he hasn't, because he's still got the knee, so yeah, 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 he yeah. just limps a bit. But his Christmas card that year was one of the funniest things. It was a picture of a filming scene and there's a pile of broken cars in the background. There's a ladder tripod with a big camera on top and cameramen and audio guys, you know, drawn around yeah. here. And Steve McQueen has got a megaphone and he's saying to David Piper, hey Dave, that was absolutely great, but we need to do one more take. <laughs> and this was David Piper who had lost his leg. Didn't that? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay, final thing. Uh, your grandson, Andrew, is racing, and this year raced in the Continental Tire Series, which is our happy yeah. partner and sponsor of this. Do you want to plug Andrew's career? Because we have a lot of fans that listen to him, and maybe you can bolster his following. Well, I'd certainly like to plug Andrew's career. Uh, unfortunately, like everybody today, he has run into the perennial problem that it takes so much money. Yeah. I mean, he drove that great Aston Martin in the race, but, you know, it's $25,000 for the weekend. Right. And that's a deal. It's a <laughs> that's well, yeah. it, you know, which, that's actually a budgeted. Yeah. Risk, uh, and he wanted to do yeah. the last three races. And they wanted him to do the last three races. Yeah. So they said, instead of charging you 75, we're going to charge you 60. Yeah. And um, right. he just couldn't come up with the 60. Yeah. And um, I don't, he's got some irons in the fire in terms of sponsorship. Um, and hopefully he can find something for next year. But. He might have to start facing reality, and um, it is going to be difficult for him to yeah. continue. But uh, he's quite fast, too. He's, he's quick enough. Yeah. And I think he'd do well in sports cars. Um, but I don't know whether he's going to be able to get the budget together for sure. it. Yeah. I mean, we're all trying to get it for him. But sure. All right. We really got to get rolling. But uh, what's, uh, we can't leave without asking, what's the, what's the David Hobbs legacy you're hoping to leave behind? Yeah, well, it's David been a Hobbs hell of a career. Well, I mean... I've always enjoyed my racing, uh, and I think, and I have a lot of, still got a lot of fans who watch me race, who enjoyed that. So, you know, you're doing something that is bringing some joy to some people. And I know my TV broadcasts irritate the <laughs> shit out of some people, but <laughs> I get a lot of extremely loyal fans who say, boy, you know, you're the best commentator. You three are the best commentators yeah. in any sport. So, you know, I mean, I suppose, I'm not going to leave a legacy because 
I mean, you know, legacies are only belong to people like Arnold Palmer who leave a real legacy. But okay. Hopefully, I will leave the world happier that I was there. And that more people will be happy to have heard me and see me than than will not. And um, so that's the way I kind of look at it. I try and be entertaining, try and be funny if I can. Some people like it. Most people like it. And the odd one doesn't. So you can't please all the people all the time. Perfect. I'd say on that note, Continental's got the check. I'm finished. Wow, that was such a great episode. That guest really knew how to tell a story. Well, good, Ryan. And as long as you're happy, I'm happy. And the audience is happy. Because of your efforts. You're welcome, Sean. I'm right here. All right, shout out to Mr. David Hobbs in Vero Beach, Florida, who uh, was just super gracious in the whole process. And uh, and we said this at the beginning of the episode, but no joke, that guy tried to help us carry everything back to our car when uh, when the lunch was over, which is just kind of tells you everything you need to know about him. So, all right, we're going to close out. Uh, the next song is from one of our fan submissions, a guy we've never met before. Uh, you heard one of his songs earlier, a guy named Mike Birch, uh, B-I-R-C-H. Uh, you can find him on Bandcamp. And uh, here's a song called Look Down the Road. down the road down the road
thinking about it now one more time Wondering where my wandering will be As I look down the road I'm not one to waste time looking back Doesn't matter what happened before What I never had I must be moving 